everybody to a live episode of Between the Bites. My name is Derek Parkinson. I'm in the marketing team here with Executech. And I'm Gary Arnold. And I'm James Fair. Welcome, gentlemen. Today, we're going to talk about cryptocurrencies, billion-dollar bridge problem. While we wait a few minutes to let people join, let's go through some fun questions, some of my favorites. First and foremost, James, we'll start with you. Best purchase you've made under $100 in the last, let's say, six months or so? Man, you ask tough questions. <laughs> um, I'm a nerd, so I'm going to have to go with my uh, Logitech Pro uh, headphones, Pro X right. wireless headphones. They are super nice to listen to. Uh, they're really big and heavy, not quite as light as the ones I normally wear. So, But yeah, super nice headphones. I did get them on for, for under 100 bucks. It was a deal, so... I'm going with that. It is. Love it. Gary? I'm really glad you said that, James, because I was at a total loss. And then I realized, <laughs> oh, I got earbuds also nice. under $100. <laughs> and I love my little earbuds and take them hiking. I got them from Wise, which yeah, high quality and cheap. It was great. Nice. Very nice. And then let's go with your favorite app of the last six months or so, most used I actually, um, for me, I subscribed to the Hay House Unlimited app, uh, audio app. So it's like all their audio books and meditations and podcasts, uh, all for one price for the entire year. It was like 55 bucks for the whole year. And I've been using that really heavily. I really appreciate their content. A lot of good stuff. I'm into the self-improvement stuff and they got a ton on there. So uh, that's going to be my vote. Love it. See, now, now it's going to sound like I'm just copying James. <laughs> Make him go first next time. <laughs> I mean, Spotify is probably one of my top used apps, followed by the Google Podcast app. But a recent one I just discovered is Libby. So Ooh. along the same theme of audiobooks from the library. So Ooh. it's great. So I just started picking that up. Not usually an audiobook guy, but I'm giving it a shot. And so far, it's been pretty good. Yeah, I'm not usually an audiobook person either, but it's been kind of convenient as I'm doing other things, playing with a dog, whatever, go for a hike, that I can listen to a book along the way. And I, it's kind of enjoyable. I really like it. So I get yep. to, you know, twice as much book content that way, reading and listening. I love it. All right. Well, let's dive in with the bridge topic that we're going to be covering. It would be pretty helpful for most to do a quick recap on blockchain specifically. This is centered around cryptocurrency is obviously the uh, the thing that keeps getting stolen from a lot of these unfortunate organizations, but it is with the bridge, which is kind of a bridge between blockchains, really. So, James, how about you kick us off with a quick recap on what blockchain is? All right. Quick recap on blockchain. I'll do my best. A transaction between, say, you and I that is recorded in a ledger and unlike centralized bank where they keep the information and we have no idea, you know, no one else can see that. We can not We can only go look at our own transaction history. Um, this is a public, typically we're referring to a public ledger. Uh, that's not always the case, but let's say, you know, in the case of like Bitcoin or Ethereum, we're talking about a, a public ledger. So it's out there for everyone to see. And every transaction that occurs is in that ledger. Now with blockchain, we're not only going to record the transaction between you and I, we're going to record, you know, the addresses that our information came from and went to, how much it was, the date, time, all that stuff. But then we're going to put a random string of characters in there, numbers and letters. And then in each subsequent transaction, we're going to reference the previous code block and look at that and in incorporate that mathematically into 
the string of digits that we create for the next transaction. So you and I do one, it creates the first one, it's kind of random. And the second one you and I do, it references that first one in the math to create a new string in that second one. And each subsequent transaction then uses the previous one. So we're creating blocks of information, blocks of entries, and each block references the previous one. So it's a chain. And anywhere along the line, if one of them were to be changed, then that chain would no longer be accurate. It would be, you know, it'd be inaccurate. So, so we can quickly and easily verify the information in new blocks because it has to have those previous transaction history all the way through it. It's kind of a short version of it. Excellent. Now, the vulnerability that's been discovered in this past year, especially, especially, it looks like there was one other attack that was about six months ago. But in the past year, we've been focusing on bridges. And from what I can understand, and correct me where I'm wrong here, James, is a bridge is essentially a bridge between blockchains. So if you are working with, say, Ethereum is what you have, and you need to convert it quickly and easily to a different kind to use one of these apps, or in this case, one of them was actually a game, then a bridge is how you can convert that. It holds my Ethereum and gives me an equivalent amount in the other one. And when I'm done playing that game or using some of these other tools that were hacked, I go back to the bridge and it converts it back to the Ethereum and I leave. Is that kind of correct? Yeah, yeah, that's a good version of it. Yeah, the, the idea being that we have two different ledger systems created by two different sets of programmers, probably using different programming languages, is very diverse information. And someone came along and said, all right, we got to figure out a way to make these two be able to transact between each other. And as you said, it's not simply to be able to, to move things back and data back and forth, but we also have to be able to hold on to large amounts of, in this case, cryptocurrency, right? So we have to be able to hold enough Ethereum to be able to cover the purchases that you make and enough of that other currency to be able to support transactions back the other way, back to Ethereum. So you can end up with a lot of stored currency value in these bridges as they hold on to these things as people move back and forth. You have to have enough to be able to support you know, all of the all the purchases in either direction. So it can be a, a lot of value stored in those for sure. And then where exactly does the attack come into play? How are they getting their hands on all this cryptocurrency? So unlike blockchain, which was created, you know, and, and it's a very, so far, a very secure method of, it is a very secure method of, storing that ledger information. So unlike that, these developers aren't using a blockchain. They're not coming along and saying, hey, let's use a blockchain to data between two blockchains. They're using traditional programming, right? They're using languages. And all of those are subject to human errors like anything else is. Unfortunately, unlike Ethereum and Bitcoin, the two big ones, which are built on established parameters of security and created all these things around them to have security. These aren't, that's part of the problem. And then another part of the problem is that, so you have to have proof of work to do a Bitcoin entry in the ledger, meaning at least 50% of the machines out there that are turning through this have to say, yes, we approve of that transaction, it looks good to us. That's not the case because that's that's a slow, long process in some cases, and particularly in the Ethereum network, which is really busy these days, they instead did their own verification process. So instead of using 50%, they created nine nodes, I believe it was in this case, they created nine nodes whose job it was to go out and verify transactions. Well, this attacker 
managed to take over five of those, meaning the majority of those machines. And as soon as you have the majority, just like in a 51% attack in cryptocurrency world, that means I get to control what's on the ledger. So he went in and created a whole bunch of fake entries that said, yep, I've got this much Ethereum, even though he didn't have the equivalent on the other side to match it. So actually, he, he attacked four. Um, I believe it was, said it was through a social networking. It's still a little vague on that whole thing, but he managed to get a hold of four of the machines. And then using those four, he was able to, to attack the fifth one, which is some kind of community machine. And as soon as he had five out of nine, he had the majority. He can go write whatever ledger entries he wants at that point. Gotcha. And to anybody watching, if you have any questions, feel free to throw them in the comments and it will pull them in. We'll make sure to get those answered. All right. So cryptocurrencies stored. Well, it's someone converts in from one crypto into another, we'll say Ethereum into a different one to use a different service or tool. And while it's sitting there in storage, that's when the attack comes in. From what I've seen, like you said, James, the nodes that are used to verify is substantially less than a traditional blockchain. Nine is, is way <laughs> lower. Yeah. The other thing that I was reading is that bridges have been pretty useful on speeding up the process. Like you said, Ethereum, for example, is pretty busy. So the traditional verification model does take a little bit more time. That is what creates the security, but it does take more time. So with these companies that are trying to scale as quickly as possible, some corners might be cut specifically in the security end. Is that what you see as the overlying cause or do you see? Yeah, I mean, you know, compared to the 10,000 plus nodes that are on the Bitcoin now, we're talking about nine, right? That's a, that, <laughs> that's a much more attainable number to try to hack than 5,000 plus machines. So yeah, that and, you know, who knows how much security went into the creation of the, and, and nothing against these folks. They're doing their best to create a portal between a much needed service between cryptocurrencies which, you know, those developers are doing their own thing. They're not going to have time to, to kind of correlate and work that work that out. They're doing their best in there, but they're they're humans. They're developers. They're going to make mistakes. And they may not have, you know, in some cases, and I'm sure there's ones out there who have, so I don't want to bash on all of them, but there are probably bridge developers who don't have a whole lot of security personnel on staff, right? Or they may not be bringing in third-party auditors to, to check code out and make sure it's going well. These are folks who are trying to create a service and, get it out there. And in many cases, that's run by, you know, a business executive who's saying, well, let's add this feature. Let's add this feature. This is a cool, hey, our competitor has this. Let's add this feature as well. But not necessarily checking the underlying security that goes on behind it, because that's just not necessarily top of mind to business versus security personnel. So there's a lot of places where this can go wrong for sure. And it's not wasn't created by Satoshi where we have this long white paper of, of ways to prevent this from being a security issue. It's someone trying to figure out some way to get these two disparate systems to talk to each other. And to clarify again, James, the reason that they didn't just build basically another blockchain type framework to run all this, which would have been more secure, is because it just would have been more costly in terms of the speed and the output that you yeah. need. Yeah, and, and development time and yeah, on, 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 on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, they're trying to get something spun up. You know, in a lot of cases, we're trying to beat someone else to the market, right? Hey, this, I see a, a need right here. Let's create this really quick and get it rolled out. Then maybe we'll add some more. Not that they aren't being secure along the way, but again, we're all humans. We're all going to make human errors. So it's subject to those, unfortunately. Um, I don't know if you guys caught it, but apparently the U.S. Treasury Department actually says that, uh, that attack we're referring to from uh, Axie Infinity, they are pointing at North Korean's hacking group Lazarus for it. So this is the same group that did the Sony Pictures hack. Remember, they released the, the interview, which was yeah. set in North Korea prior to that. 
and a bunch of ATM attacks across Asia and Asia and Africa. So that was just recently released too. They were pointing those addresses appear to come from a Lazarus group in North in North Korea. Interesting. That's crazy. And I'm sure in your position with Executech, you've seen this a lot. Um, it is not only executives and, and organizations dealing in cryptocurrency that have the issue of rapid growth and overall IT quality and as well as security is that does seem to be one of the main things that kind of gets pushed aside. If you are just getting started, you've got less than 100 clients and you've got some of their sensitive information is one thing, but then when you start to scale and start to grow pretty rapidly and then you have a thousand clients, then it, it gets pretty serious and using the same methods is irresponsible, honestly. Yeah. I get a lot of calls from folks saying, you know, we've grown in a big hurry. We need to make sure we're covered, right? And at least yep. they're being somewhat proactive about it. But it's certainly not necessarily top of mind as most organizations are being built. It's something to consider, but it's also a behemoth, right? It's massive. And most business execs aren't really sure where to begin, how to tackle it, what's appropriate, what the budget should be. And that's not necessarily where they want to focus. Obviously, they want to make sure they're secure, but by the same token, that's not exactly token. Uh -huh. Funny. That's not exactly where, uh, <laughs> where they want to put all their money if they're not a security-based company. But you know, that being said, there are plenty of organizations I've worked with who deal in large funds and things like that who've said, yeah, we want to make sure our clients are protected. We want to make sure our funds are protected. We want to make sure our, our customers are protected. So what do we need to do that? But Absolutely. There are certainly those out there, particularly the small media businesses. These are folks that, you know, are just trying to get by and working six, you know, most of the owners are working six, seven days a week and they can barely afford to buy some new computer gear. Now you're telling me you got to stack on a whole bunch of security software and services on top of that. So yeah, it's, it's always going to be a concern, I think. So with this major issue, because a billion dollars is a substantial amount of money. And that's just an estimate. Looking at the last six months, it's actually crossed that billion-dollar threshold Ouch. with some of these attacks. And the majority of them are just three, I think is what I counted, that they were talking about. Three major attacks. There's been other smaller ones, of course, but those three major ones have almost single-handedly covered that billion-dollar note. What could be done about it, if anything? Third-party auditing will help for a lot of coders. It's not easy to look at your own code and see flaws. So I certainly recommend, and, and we do this at Executech, right? We bring in a third party whose job it is to come in and evaluate our position and the way that we have things set up and see if they can attack us, if they can break into us. Uh, it's really not flawless, but they're going to see things that may be overlooked by the people who do this all day, every day, and get kind of lost in the weeds sometimes. So I certainly recommend third-party auditing. It's usually part of compliance regulations. It's a big part of it. And speaking of which, right, at some point, there's going to be, and we talked about this at one of previous podcast, some oversight into this. Some settings will be, you know, some requirements will be applied to these things to say you have to have third-party auditing or you have to have these security measures in place. You know, that's coming. I think we've, we saw that during the, the executive order from Biden, right, about crypto. So this stuff is coming. But in the meantime, yeah, I mean, third-party auditing, having security, and have other people test your code for you. Bug bounties are a good way to do it. I mean, it's not ideal, but it's a good start, right? Some pay someone to let you know if there's a flaw is much better than finding the flaw the hard way. So <laughs> <laughs> there's plenty of white hat hackers out there who will happily show you where your errors are. And, yeah. and they're easy to do. I, I know developers and some of them told me, yeah, I looked at some guy's code in this new crypto and people don't realize it, but there was this big gaping hole and I got on a call and I let them know and they reach out to me they're like, what? And this conversation with them and, and sure enough, they're like, oh my gosh, you're right. So 
when you're dealing with thousands or tens of thousands or millions of lines of code, it's kind of hard to see all those little things that you may miss. So that was a couple of suggestions anyway. Excellent. I wanted to comment real quick, James. I, I We were looking at these articles and, and researching this topic of how much has been lost in those hacks. And I just couldn't wrap my mind around that it, that it's a billion, a billion dollars just seems yeah. like so much. But then I was like, well, so how much money is actually in crypto? Because you don't, you're like, crypto that's just for you know niche bros and you know tech right. and things like that there's almost three trillion dollars wrapped up in all the cryptocurrencies which is just so much mind-boggling yeah how big it's so gotten much. i wanted to ask though with with these hacks especially the the recent one that the ronin which i believe is the name of the bridge that was being used yeah did it impact the market of crypto yeah, it did. Solaro, Solora, I can't remember the name of the, the token is that uh, was on the flip side of that bridge, but it took a 10% hit. So people get a little sketchy about it, right? It tends to, anytime someone gets hit like that, they, people tend to move away from it. The value tends to drop, not as much as you would think, right? Maybe if something happened at a, at a company, um, the stock would certainly plummet and we see similar results, but not so much because a lot of people aren't in the know about these things either. Uh, yeah. A lot of people are playing in space and they're not necessarily familiar with. Yeah. But yeah, there's crazy amounts of money in there. And, you know, I mean, not to bring up politics, but uh, Ukraine recently passed a law that said, we're going to we're gonna allow crypto here because they were receiving so many funds from donations in the form of crypto. It's easy to send, right? I don't just worry about doing Swift or anything like that or find somebody to send it to. I'll just donate some crypto. And so they made crypto legal over there and <laughs> hard to blame them. And yeah. depending on how this all plays out long-term, maybe become a future haven for the crypto universe. We'll see. Interesting. Yeah. One of my favorite ways to put a billion in this perspective is using seconds. So a thousand seconds ago was about 17 minutes ago. A million seconds ago was 11 days. A billion seconds ago was about 32 years ago. Wow. That's a great <laughs> analogy. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's a long time. Put that to scale. Yeah. A billion dollars is a lot of loss, a yeah, lot of yeah. very painful loss. And somebody's eating that, right? That's that's not going coming just dreamed up. Someone someone has to eat that cost yes. of that thing. That's for yeah, sure. Came so. from somewhere. Yeah. Uh, the last money. kind of uh, one of the wrap up questions that I had, and then I'll open the floor to any other closing thoughts from either of you. Is should people still use crypto? I know the answer, but we're going to ask it anyways. <laughs> should we trust crypto with this major issue going on? The answer is be careful, right? This is a new exploding market. Organizations are racing to be the first to do different things. So it's got a lot of volatility and a lot of risk, no doubt about it. There are some that are certainly more established than others, but nothing is flawless. I think back in the day at banks, right, we used to have holdups, right, at banks. It's probably not necessarily a thing we hear about so much anymore, but this is the equivalent. You know, back in the Wild West, you'd get your your wagon train held up. This is, this is the equivalent of this going on before we started making this a better system. So I personally believe that crypto is the future. This is not going away. And I think Biden's executive order kind of indicated that they felt the same way. And in fact, he wanted the U.S. to be a participant in this world rather than being behind the times, as I think we already are a little bit as far as the world goes. But there are some established ways to purchase and use crypto that is safer than others. If you're playing a brand new game, which I think that game is still in beta, and it's doing, and you're using a bridge that's not necessarily tried and true, then you're running a pretty high risk, right? So make sure you're playing with funds that you can afford to lose in that case. 
if you are looking to just get some to invest and sit on it, hodl as it's called, then find a an exchange that's local to your country, such as Coinbase is local to the US here, and there's a couple others, Gemini, and purchase a, a known crypto rather than an unknown crypto. Buy some Bitcoin, buy some Ethereum. Those are going to be your, your safest bets. And then find a secure way to store it as well. Both those exchanges will keep your data, keep your, rather your value, your currencies um, stored for you. But I will point out that historically, some exchanges have been hacked too. You know, they're not, they're not immune to these things. But they have some backing if you put enough money into it. I think it's like it's a million dollars they have backing in, but I don't no one's going to throw a million dollars at a bunch of cryptocurrency. So anything short of that, you know, do you want to store it on a, a little USB wallet so you can keep it with you? You know, that, that also has some security holes, but so does everything else, right? People are getting hacked from their Visa cards every day. Digital currency is being hacked. And that's why I think this executive order was a move in the right direction, as does most of the crypto world, at least in the U.S., because now we're going to say, all right, let's get some regulations in place. Let's get some fiscal backing. Let's get some bigger minds looking at this and make sure we're all doing this in a more secure fashion instead of the Wild West, which is kind of what it is right now out there. So, Excellent. Gary, any closing thoughts on crypto and cybersecurity? No, I just, I'm wondering what that hacker is going to do with all that money. <laughs> I was even going to get it out, but you know. Yeah, how do you get it out? When all this is being publicly monitored and, and the FBI is certainly well aware and watching those addresses, that's for sure. Yeah. How do you yeah. move that stuff? Almost be like torture. You have all the money. You just can't touch it or you'll go to jail. <laughs> right. Well, did you see the other hack where the guy gave back? Yeah. Gave back the $300 million? Yeah, it was an insane amount that he gave Yeah, back. it was like $300 million. He came back and he said, now let me give it back. I mean, he was more than that. So now let me give the money back, but I'm going to give more than that money back. So I was trying to yeah. figure out, all right, what happened here? So either he really was a white hat hacker and he was trying to, and this has happened before, right? We talked about this in another podcast where a security professional couldn't get the attention of the developers. And so he hacked him and said, mm -hmm. look, I told you this was a problem. So it was either that or the way this plays out, though, it feels more like he hacked them and then went, ah, this is a bad idea. This I don't want to go to church. <laughs> yeah, I got a wife and kids. I'm a little worried about this. Right. So let me get this was... back and, I, and I'll pose it as though, see, I told you guys there was an exploit yeah. you could have fixed. <laughs> and uh, here's some more money. Just, just take take the money back. <laughs> was it 100 million? Yeah. Okay. 600 million. 600 yeah, million. Yeah, 600 million. Crazy amount of money, right? So, you know, it could buy a small country with that, but it's all being traced and tracked and people are watching that stuff. So I suspect, and if you read their article, they offered him position. They said, if you'll return the funds because of the way you've, you know, you've come across as this white hat hacker, we want to bring you on board as, as our cybersecurity uh, officer. <laughs> <laughs> and he started replying signatures of, you know, dash your cybersecurity officer. So, <laughs> so it's one way to get a job too. If you really want to, you know, go hack yeah. somebody, give them the money back. And like, I was just kidding. I was kidding. Hire me, please. <laughs> yeah. That'll beat any interview questions you could ask. Yeah, that's exactly. Sure. Like, well, how can, you know, how do we know you're the right guy for the job? Like, I hacked your ass. That's, that's yeah. <laughs> that beats anybody's resume any day for it's sure. I true. actually did it. So anyway, I just wanted to bring up that article. I thought that was too clever not to share. So yeah, that's pretty great. <laughs> uh, the last piece, the social engineering is was mentioned again as one of the methods that was used to get in and actually take over some of these nodes on the bridge. Social engineering is a major problem and is a shameless Executech plug. I am actually putting together an article on what social engineering is and some of the methods that are being used. So look for that. I did a um, webinar on that. I got lots of data if you want some. That'd be great. 
Yeah, it's a very real problem. And it is one of those that a lot of the methods are very harmless, seemingly harmless questions that when you put them together, if you look back and (laughs) retroactively look back, you go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I gave that person all of this information about me. But you did it in little tiny little bites. And it's amazing the picture that people can paint over a person or an organization with very simple questions asked at a large frequency and a large number. So look for that article coming out. Any other closing thoughts before we uh, wrap this live episode up, gentlemen? Uh, I think you said it pretty well. And it, it's beyond you know the scope of that. There are some very easy ones. I had a family member call me up recently and say, my Norton subscription, they just charged me five years and I called the number and then a gentleman from another country answered and I got kind of suspicious and I hung up. He wanted me to install an app, right? And I'm like, oh mm-hmm. gosh. And you looked and the, and the email account was some random Gmail account. So just unfortunately, please be paranoid, be cautious out there. If it comes from your email, even if it's something legitimate, your flight is late, your Amazon payment is due, we didn't receive it all, whatever it may be, don't click on the link, don't call the number, Look up the number somewhere else, you know, do some website browsing, find the number, find an email address that's appropriate and reach out to them that way. Don't click anything in email. It's just not trustworthy these days. Excellent advice. Well, James and Gary, thank you guys for coming out. We'll go ahead and wrap this live episode. And for all of those who are listening, we do new episodes every week of Between the Bites. You can find it anywhere you can find a podcast, really, on Anchor, Spotify, Google, Apple, you name it. We will catch everybody on the next one. Thanks for coming out, gentlemen. Be safe out there, everybody. Bye-bye. See ya.